Hello and welcome everybody. This is Dr. Tully for History 302. Uh, today we're going to be talking about World War II propaganda, but also Walt Disney. Now I bet you've noticed if you look on Moodle, hey, there's nothing to read this week. That's right, you don't have anything to read this week. I decided not to do a, writing, a reading assignment this week, but don't get too happy. There's a lot of stuff to watch. Uh, there's more stuff than usual to watch. However, a lot of it is like children's cartoons, so eh, you might have some fun with it. So that's that, let's get going. Uh, we're going to start out talking about Walt Disney. Uh, this one's going to be kind of a sandwich. We're going to start with Disney, then get into the propaganda, then kind of end with Disney as well. Because Disney is a very important figure in the history of American pop culture. I personally would have him in my top three. Um, my top three for most influential Americans when it comes to American pop culture, uh, creating an American culture, kind of the... Um, Intellectual, you know, underpinnings of American culture. Uh, my top three would be P.T. Barnum, who we've talked about, Buffalo Bill Cody, who we talked about, and finally Walt Disney. And we're going to talk about Disney for quite a while today before we get into World War II propaganda. Now, Disney himself, he's born, if you ever one side, you're going to see him as a little kid, uh, then you're going to see him as a young man, as an animator. Uh, he's born in 1901 in Chicago, uh, spends most of his life around the Midwest. Uh, Born around Chicago, moves to a place around Missouri for a while. I believe whenever he's like seven or eight, they move. He and his family move to Kansas City, Missouri. Uh, that's where he spends most of his young life. That's probably the place that's closest to him for home is Kansas City, Missouri. Like I mentioned, he was born in 1901, kind of around the turn turn of the century. It's it's not a. It's not to over-exaggerate. You can really say that, you know, the 20th century was very much the Disney century. You know, he's born early in this century, and then he really kind of dominated the century, and theoretically going on and on. Uh, whenever he's a fairly young man, World War II comes into place. He's still a teenager in this time period. Remember, he was born in 1901. So by the time the U.S. gets involved in 1917, 1918, he's quite young. He's quite young. Uh, he tries to volunteer for military service. Uh, it's seen as something he can do. It's a good way to get ahead in the world. Uh, he is denied because he is indeed too young. Uh, later on, he lies about his age. He lies about his age for the Red Cross and is, goes over to France. Now, interestingly enough, uh, while he's in France, he is an ambulance driver. But the most interesting thing he does is the fact that by the time he gets there, the war's already over. Uh, by the time he gets to France, the armistice is already signed. He stays there until about 1919, so pretty much he's 17, 18 years old. Uh, being an ambulance driver in France, the war is already over. The armistice is you know, signed. Uh, just because the war is over doesn't mean the soldiers are going home. Uh, that's, that's something you see oftentimes after war. Is even though the war is over, soldiers are still being used. People still get injured you know, even after war is theoretically over. So you know, he's driving for an ambulance, but the main thing that Disney does to make money in this time period... Uh, his main way to like really support himself is he starts making forgeries of German weapons. Uh, he starts making forgeries of German weapons, uh, German armaments, uh, you know, clothing, things like that, uh, for prizes, for war prizes for Allied soldiers. Uh, there's a very big industry in this time period of soldiers, you know, going back to the United States, wanting to buy trophies, wanting to have military trophies. You know, basically, you know, get a German Iron Cross or uh, you know, get get a well, the Luger's not really around yet. That's a big World War II one. But, you know, this idea, like, get a German gun, get a German bayonet, that sort of thing. Something very common in this time period. And honestly, in all warfare, is try to get military booty. Try to get war prizes. 
And Disney is making forgeries. He's making fake ones and going to the trains of the soldiers who are going to be going back to America and selling these fake German weapons. These fake German, you know, clothing, fake German um, items that could be used as war booty. Now, ironically, nowadays, the Disney forgeries are more valuable than the actual German authentic documents. Uh, the authentic German armaments and clothing are actually, Disney's forgeries are worth more because he's Walt Disney. Uh, that We're going to tie that in later on in the class when we talk about you know how Disney manufactures reality. Uh, it's just funny that he, he starts doing that fairly young. He's like 17, 18 years old selling fake German you know, equipment to soldiers coming back from war. Uh, after the war, he returns to Kansas City. Um, you know, he's a young man, doesn't really go to college or art school or anything, uh, starts working at a commercial art studio in Kansas City, uh, mainly doing things like drawing for ads, um, not, not even really cartoons, not really comics, just like, you know, artwork for ads. Uh, those of you who are involved in graphic design, uh, for instance, what my, my fraternal my fraternal little brother, my fraternity little brother, uh, he's very big in graphic design. Most of the time, the things he makes aren't really because he wants to, it's because it's a job, it's a gig, somebody wants it. Now, at this art studio, this commercial art studio, where he's making art for ads and things like that, he meets another cartoonist, another um, artist by the name of Oob Iwerks. If you go over one slide, you'll see a picture of young Disney with Oob Iwerks. Uh, the two hit it off. They hit it off. They become pretty good friends. Uh, later, the studio, uh, the commercial art studio kind of closes down, so they decide, you know what? We're going to go in business for ourselves. Make our own studio. Uh, call it iWorks Disney. Uh, they figured if they call it Disney iWorks, people think it's like an opto- uh, optometrist or somebody who makes you glasses, but they go with iWorks Disney. Um, they're mainly doing comics, not really cartoons. Um, Disney's very interested by uh, newspaper comics, things like The Yellow Kid, Yellow Kid's a little bit earlier, Mutt and Jeff is a big one. Uh, kind of these early newspaper comics. Uh, comic books, as we know them, haven't really come out yet. Uh, we might do a unit about comic books, uh, the modern comic books. Uh, Superman comes out a little bit later. In this time period, most comics are newspaper comics. And so he's interested in them. He's not really doing cartoons early on. Early on, he's not doing cartoons. This is like 1920, uh, 1919, after he gets back from the war. Uh, He does become interested in cartoons a little bit later, like in 1921. uh, Kind of interested in the medium. He finds all the technology, thinks there's something to it, mainly because he gets a job. Uh, there's a Kansas City movie theater. Uh, it's a company that owns a couple different movie theaters. They kind of contract out, hey, hey, we want some comics. We want some, uh, we want some cartoons for our theaters. We just want some little things. And so he starts getting involved with the Laughograms. Uh, Laughogram are some of the first cartoons that he does. They're very much uh, projects for a client. It's not anything he really likes. Um, he, he kind of does a little bit of fairy tales, a little bit of like, you know, just, you know, children's stories. They're in the public domain. They're fairly well known. Uh, they're of a decent success around Kansas City. Around Kansas City, they, they get, they're a little bit uh, ambitious. Uh, you know, they're, they're kind of interesting in, around Kansas City. Uh, he does get a bit more ambitious with one about Alice in Wonderland, the Alice series. Uh, I don't think I gave you any, like, YouTube clips of that. They exist. You can find them. Um, it's very, very early Disney work. It combines live action with animation. 
These Alice shorts combine, you know, a little little girl, uh, a little little girl, a real little girl, a young child actress, basically acting as Alice in Wonderland in a whole series of silent movies that mix animation with live action, kind of a fanciful world, telling the story of Alice in Wonderland, which is already well in the public domain, fairly well known, people know the book. Now, the uh, iWorks Disney Studio goes underground. It, basically, they go under in 1923. They go out of business. Um, Disney's kind of at a crossroads. He does like Oob pretty well. You know, he and iWorks get along pretty well. They're pretty good friends at this point in time. Uh, however, he's like, you know what? I need to move. Kansas City is too small. I mean, to be fair, Kansas City, even though it's a decent-sized city, it doesn't really have the infrastructure to support uh, these type of cartoons. Likewise, the Alice cartoons are, are quite... Um, Ambitious, they're very expensive because you're combining two mediums. Animation, by the way, if you don't know anything about animation, animation is very expensive. Like if you're doing hand drawn animation, it is super expensive to do. Uh, in 1923, however, uh, Disney decides, and by the way, he's still very young 22, 20, he's 22 years old in this time period. Um, he decides to move to Los Angeles. Uh, Los Angeles is, you know, the home of Hollywood in this time period. We talked about that earlier with early movies. However, not so much animation. Most animation in this time period, uh, particularly comics, which Disney thinks he wants to get into, is based around New York. In fact, still to this day, most comics and comic books are based in New York, while most uh, American-made animation is based in Los Angeles. At this time period, though, they were all based within New York. But as I said, Disney decides instead to go to Los Angeles... Um, one of the reasons is his brother is there. His brother, Roy, is getting a tuberculosis treatments. And so he's like, you know, I'm going to go where I know somebody. Uh, he gets lucky, however, when, whenever he gets word that they want more Alice shorts. Um, somebody in New York is interested in more Alice shorts. And so he actually starts a company with his brother, Roy, the one who got him to Los Angeles in the first place, uh, called the Walt Disney Company. Um, it's very much a mer- it's between the two brothers. Uh, Roy is just as involved as Walt is early on. Uh, it, they do this in late 1923. They start trying to make the Isla shorts. Um, there's, they do decent and well. Um, in fact, in 1924, he sends over Ube Iwerks to come over from Kansas City, come to Los Angeles, join the Walt Disney Company. Now, the, the Alice shorts are fairly popular, but fairly quickly, Disney and Iwerks realize, you know what? This is really, really... Um, a pain to make. I mean, they are technologically impressive. I mean, if you watch them, you know, you can find them on YouTube. They're, they're well within the public domain. Uh, they're, they're impressive for the fact that this is the 1920s and they're combining animation with live action. Uh, they're not especially great animation by any chance. Likewise, the live action is not especially that great either. It's literally just one little girl who's the live action thing. Uh, and they're also a pain to make. Uh, they're a very tedious process. Uh, Disney and iWorks decide, you know what, maybe we can just make animated movies. We can make an, our own animated movie. And if we make our own animated character, it could be pretty popular. And so they decide to make their own animated character, one that they can own entirely, kind of get into some shenanigans. And they come up with, if you go over one slide, Oswald the Lucky Rabbit. That's right, Oswald the Lucky, Lucky Rabbit, one you've never heard of before. Uh, Oswald the Lucky Rabbit, or Oswalt the Lucky Rabbit. Um, I've heard it called both, actually. Um, But unless you want a Mandela effect yourself, it's Oswald the Lucky Rabbit. Uh, Oswald the Lucky Rabbit is Disney's first real animated character. 
you saw in the uh, the short I made you watch for um, the Great Depression escapism, that confidence one. If you notice, it's very, very similar to what's going to come later. Now, these Oswald uh, pictures are pretty popular. They're distributed through Universal Pictures. You can see right there. Uh, Oswald's the one on the left. He's the rabbit with a little hat. Um, Universal Pictures presents Oswald the Lucky Rabbit and Poor Papa. Uh, they're getting pretty popular. Uh, they are kind of, you know, making some money to make. Still, they're pretty popular. Uh... Disney's first deal with Universal is not very beneficial to Disney, but since they've become popular, Disney feels like he can renegotiate to get a better deal. Now, Universal calls the bluff. Basically, the calls the bluff on Disney and iWorks, saying basically, um, hey, if you notice, Disney doesn't own the Oswald character, Universal does. Basically, they're saying Universal is the one that owns the Oswald character, not Disney, which was correct. That was part of the deal. And basically, we can make these cartoons without you. Uh, they pretty much hire all of Disney's animators outside of iWorks. Actually, they even offered to iWorks. iWorks refuses. iWorks says, no, I'm going to stay with Disney. Uh, he's my friend. He's somebody who got me over here. And Oswald's the only... Sorry, uh, iWorks is the only one left at Disney. Uh, for instance, the cartoon you watched, the Oswald cartoon that you watched, was not done by Disney. It was done by Universal's own cartoonist later on. Now, this really upsets Disney and iWorks. They're like, you know what? Maybe we could make our own character. If we make our own character that we solely own, that's pretty much a direct ripoff of Oswald, maybe we could make something out of it. We, we could really own something that we completely own. Universal can't mess us over. We can make sure that whoever we get to distribute this is not going to screw us over. And so iWorks and Disney, and primarily iWorks, which is going to become a source of contention in a second, come up with a new character, Mickey Mouse. If you go over one slide, you'll see Mickey and Oswald. Um, Oswald's not very happy with Mickey and that. Um, like you saw in the cartoon, there is a lot of similarities between the two of them. Uh, honestly, if Universal had been kinder to Disney, not really um, tried to rake him over the coals with that deal, uh, Mickey Mouse would have never have existed, like ever, and would pretty much only know about Oswald cartoons. Uh, Mickey Mouse is pretty much, I don't want to say he's a direct rip-rop of Oswald, but there's really no difference between the two of them. I mean, they even have a very similar style of animation, a very similar similar look, very similar character. And uh, the first two Mickey cartoons actually go absolutely nowhere. Uh, the first Disney car, uh, the first Mickey Mouse cartoon uh, is a silent one. It doesn't really get anywhere. It doesn't really get anything like that. Uh, the second Mickey cartoon doesn't even get distributed uh, because it is kind of derivative, and nobody's ever heard of Mickey Mouse before. They've only heard of Oswald. But the third one is the real, real one that really puts Disney on the map. Uh, it combines animation with the new sound technology. This is only like a year after um, the jazz singer came out with the first talkie movies. Disney does the first talkie cartoon. In 1928, it's called Steamboat Willie. You go over one slide, you'll see a picture of Steamboat Willie's uh, movie poster. You know, Walt Disney's Mickey Mouse and Steamboat Willie. Uh, it itself is a ripoff of a Buster Keaton film that came out the same year called Steamboat Bill Jr., which in turn is kind of a ripoff of a song popular in the 19-teens called Steamboat Bill Jr. So the first Mickey Mouse cartoon is not exactly wholly original. He's a derivative character of Oswald the Rabbit, who's kind of ripping off a Buster uh, Keaton movie. 
Still, this raises Disney's profile immensely, mainly because of the technology. Mainly because of the fact that we're having a sound cartoon. Um, they start making more Mickey Mouse cartoons, uh, start doing more when it comes to sound in these various cartoons. Um, after Steamboat Willie, all of Disney's cartoons would have sound in them. And so this gets pretty popular, and Disney is seen as being on the cutting edge of technology. Now, in the midst of this, even though Mickey is getting more popular, uh, things are getting worse between Disney and iWorks. Uh, the success of Mickey Mouse is really upsetting to iWorks, because theoretically, iWorks was the one who actually designed Mickey Mouse. Uh, Disney voiced Mickey Mouse. Uh, pretty much, Mickey's voice is, apparently it was just Walt Disney's talking voice up-pitched a little bit. Uh, he just talked up like that. So that, that was Mickey Mouse. Uh, that was pretty much just Walt Disney. However, the art of Mickey Mouse was pretty much solely uh, iWorks, Ub iWorks. And once Disney starts, uh, once Mickey, I should say, starts getting popular, uh, iWorks feels left out. Uh, there's an apocryphal story. I don't know if it's real or not. But apparently uh, one time Disney and iWorks were at a party. And a, and a little girl walked up to him and was like, hey, Mr. Disney, can you give me an autograph and then, you know, draw me a picture of Mickey Mouse? And apparently Disney signed the autograph and then handed the paper over to iWorks and said, draw Mickey. Basically considering that Mickey, uh, that Disney did not know how to draw Mickey Mouse. Uh, in the midst of all this, iWorks leaves Disney. Um, iWorks leaves Disney completely, leaves his major creation. iWorks does work later on in cartoons pretty much for the rest of his career in the 30s and 40s. Uh, never really gets on good footing with Disney later on. Um, they, they, they definitely have a strong falling out. And this is also happening around the Great Depression. Remember, uh, Steamboat Willie's in 1928. By the time we get into like 1930, that's when iWorks leaves. The Great Depression is in full effect. But as we talked about in the Great Depression, uh, movies are actually very popular this time period. That's one of the few industries that's actually growing in this time period. And the Mickey Mouse character, even if iWorks is gone, it's still fairly popular. Now, Disney doubles down on the sound thing uh, with his Silly Symphonies. Uh, silly Symphonies are something he gets really known for. This idea of Silly Symphonies, they're shorts, they're shorts, they're not necessarily starring Mickey Mouse, but they're, they're various shorts, uh, very much done in sound. Uh, he does some of the first color cartoons, uh, some of the first cartoons in color. He does his cartoons in Technicolor. I believe Flowers and Trees is the first one. That's 1932. Um, pretty much after that, all the Silly Symphonies are in um, color. He's seen as a wonderkin. Remember, at this time period, he's still in his very early 30s. He's like 30, 31. Definitely seen as like a child prodigy of sorts. He's at the cutting edge of technology. Remember, he pretty much originated both the sound cartoon and the color cartoon. So in 1933, he does The Three Little Pigs. Uh, it's a Silly Symphony's version of The Three Little Pigs. You might be familiar with it. Who's afraid of the big bad wolf? The big bad wolf? The big bad wolf? That one. Uh, it is crazy successful. It is by far his most successful anything. Um, it's more successful than the Mickey Mouse cartoons. It's a super, super successful project. Um, it, make, it makes them realize, hey, maybe there's something to be done for these fairy tales. Maybe there, there's something to be done here with music and sound, technology, color. It doesn't have to be the Mickey Mouse shorts, which are fairly short. So in around 1934, he says, you know what? I'm going to come up with a much more ambitious project. I'm going to go even further than I had before. You know, I was the first to do a sound cartoon. I was the first to do a color cartoon. Now I'm going to do the first full-length cartoon. 
I remember most cartoons of this time were shorts, just like most movies before Birth of a Nation were shorts. You know, they're like five, ten minutes long. Uh, they're mainly gags. They don't really tell a story. Uh, for instance, if you watched, well, Confidence, yeah, that was the one you watched in the early, that's not a Disney, but you know, if you were to watch Steamboat Willie, it's mainly just like a series of gags over five minutes. There's really no story. There's really no narrative. And he says, you know what? I'm going to come up with my own full length, has a story cartoon. Uh, it's going to be Snow White. He says, I'm going to make a version of Snow White that is full length and tell a real story. It's not just going to be jokes strung together. Now, this really gets into Disney's interest in fairy tales. We'll talk about fairy tales quite a bit whenever we're in class. Uh, Disney is interested in fairy tales for two big reasons. Number one, they're very well known. Uh, he's not really telling new stories. He's telling stories that the audience is already familiar with, but done with a little bit of a twist. You know, put in a little bit of that quote-unquote Disney magic. The other reason why he's very interested in fairy tales is that they're public domain. Uh, he does not have to pay anybody for the rights for the fairy tales. He can pretty much do the story as he wants it, and then he can just go at it. Now, this is for the longest time called Disney's Folly. Uh, it was seen as a crazy idea for Disney uh, since it was going to be way too expensive. Remember, the average animation is five to ten minutes, and those are seen as overly expensive. Um, you know, a 90-minute, 80-90-minute movie, that's going to be, like, humongously expensive. Plus, most children's movies in this time period were short. They thought that Disney, uh, they thought that children don't have very long attention spans. They don't think children are able to really appreciate this. Uh, still, if you go over one slide, you'll see Snow White and the Seven Doors is a major success. It's a major, major, major success. It's released in 1937. Pretty much universal praise. Uh, Disney is ready to make even more overly ambitious films. He does more. Uh, the next one he does is Pinocchio, which is an adaptation of an old Italian story. Um, theoretically in the public domain as well. Not as well known with as something like Snow White. Uh, the Grimm's Fairy Tales are definitely more well known than this Italian stuff. Still, he wants to make this like an art piece. Um, his next film, the third full-length Disney film he makes, is Fantasia. We'll talk about Fantasia a little bit later. Uh, Fantasia is seen as way too arty and way too highbrow. It's, it's overly ambitious. Um, it's done in stereo sound. That's the innovation for it. When a lot of theaters can't do it, he has to do the roadshow format. Uh, it loses money. Um, Snow White made money, but most of Disney's later stuff actually lose money because animation's really expensive, and he's using a lot of technology. Um, I'm going to skip ahead a little bit, but Disney doesn't really start generating a real profit until he starts getting into television and uh, live-action movies and the parks, of course. Um, the Disney animated movies, they were a way for him to get the name. They never made money. Uh, they were very expensive. They never made their cost back. Now, after the failure of Fantasia, Disney has to refocus a little bit, has to kind of change his, um, his focus, because World War II is starting, and Disney really needs to adapt to the times. And this is where we're going to get into World War II propaganda. Uh, propaganda is a very loaded term. I'm very familiar with the idea that it's propaganda is a very loaded term. Definitely has a negative connotation. However, in this context, I'm really talking about the idea of propaganda designed to make change the way that people think, 
the United States is very interested in people to get supportive of the war effort. Remember, before both world wars, but particularly World War II, the United States is very, very isolationist. Uh, even though the Japanese attacked Pearl Harbor, there's talk about, like, should we attack them back? Or just because Japan declared war on us, should we attack Germany necessarily? A lot of public opinion is very much, should we fight in the first place? Now, ironically, when it comes to World War II, the Feds were initially very hesitant to get involved in propaganda. Uh, they were quite hesitant to get involved in propaganda. Uh, there were a lot of issues of freedom of speech. You know, yes, free, uh, propaganda might be uh, protected under freedom of speech, but also, shouldn't you also allow dissent? Uh, there were a lot of issues during World War I about, um, you know, speaking out against the war, sedition, things like that. Uh, a lot of rules, that, a lot of laws that ultimately got overthrown by the Supreme Court as being unconstitutional against the First Amendment. However, they decided, you know what, we need to make, you know, this, a worth, this is a worthwhile effort. We should get involved in trying to convince Americans that we should be involved in the war. And that's what they start doing, uh, thanks in large part to the Office of War Information, the OWI. Uh, basically, it's the U.S. government that's coordinating with Hollywood, businesses, newspapers, and other media to distribute quote-unquote information, mainly reaffirming why the United States needs to be involved in the war, why we should be involved in the war, and what we're involved in the war for. Now, the first big one is why we fight. Why we fight is the first really big one. And this is probably the most basic type of propaganda. It's pretty much the this is why we fight category. And the movies are called Why We Fight. It's a series of nine films. It's a series of nine films. Don't, sorry, seven films. Seven films, not nine. Seven films uh, designed pretty much to en encourage the people of the United States, hey, here's why we're fighting. Here's why it's important to get involved in this. Uh, they're made, they're directed and made by a man by the name of Frank Capra. Uh, Frank Capra, you read about last week for It's a Wonderful Life. Uh, he's already known for making very sentimental movies. Known as a filmmaker, uh, really pulls on emotion and heartstrings. Uh, the main reason this comes about, though, is actually because of a German film, a, a Nazi film called Triumph of the Will. Uh, if you watch that YouTube clip, you will see the opening of Triumph of the Will. Uh, Triumph of the Will is done by the Germans, it's done by the Nazi party, uh, done by a female director, actually. Uh, it is a depiction of the Nuremberg rally. It's a, it's a Nazi rally. Basically, it shows how great the Nazis are, very grand in its sense of scale. Uh, there's many shots that get emulated by later movies. Uh, for instance, the scene of Hitler walking towards the, uh, the dais uh, is emulated in Star Wars, in the original Star Wars movie, the throne room scene. It's pretty much shot for shot the same thing. You can you can YouTube and find it. Um, the Triumph of the Will tries to show the Nazi party is strong, overwhelming. This great force for quote-unquote good, I mean, it's very pro-Nazi, I mean, by its very definition, but also shows that they're a very powerful force, they're a very overwhelming force. Now, in contrast, Why We Fight really talks about the morality of the war and shows that the balance of freedom in the world is very narrowly balanced. Uh, the Nazi film is coming from the source of strength. Um, Why We Fight is definitely coming from a place of balance, a place of, hey, you know, the entire world's on like a razor's edge, 
It can be very easily overwhelmed by bad people. We need to fight against it. Uh, they're produced throughout the war. Like I said, there's seven movies in all. Uh, they're typically shown to U.S. soldiers during training. Uh, remember, there's a draft going on in this time period, and people who get drafted don't necessarily want to fight. And so these films, they're generally shown to soldiers during training. It's like at night, you're going to watch a movie to you know learn about the enemy, learn about why we're fighting. Uh, they later do some like learn your enemy films, talk about why the Japanese are bad, stuff like that. They do get some general release. However, it's mainly done for soldiers, mainly done for people who are actually going to be fighting. Now, while they're making it, there are some questions about if the films would hold up after the war or if it'd be seen as too warlike. Uh, you can watch a little bit of it. Uh, there's a picture of Frank Capra. Uh, if you go over one more for the uh, Why We Fight series of seven information films, you can watch a little clip of it. Don't watch it all by any sense. You'll get the general gist. Likewise, I think I gave you five minutes of Triumph of the Will. Um, you'll, you'll get the point of it pretty quick. Basically, it's Nazis in this film are quote-unquote good, they're powerful, they're overwhelming. You're, you're hopeless to resist them. Uh, if you watch Why We Fight, like I said, I think that's like a, the first film, so it's like an hour. Uh, don't watch the entire hour. Just watch, I don't know, five, ten minutes. You get the idea of what they're arguing here. Like I said, that is the most common form of propaganda in World War II, uh, but most of the other ones can be divided into two main categories, uh, labor issues and war bonds. Label issue, label, labor issues and war bonds. Uh, labor issues are pretty basic, uh, wartime mechanization was leading to higher wages, and there was pressure on workers to not hold out for even higher wages. Remember, the country had been going through the Great Depression. Wars cost money. Wars have to have things get built. Everybody making a tank and stuff uh, gets paid, and they get paid very big, fat government contracts. They're getting paid a lot more money. Uh, they're basically trying to say, hey, just because you, know, you can ask for more money, because a war's going on and you're very much in demand, don't do it. I have some examples of that if you go over one slide. Uh, together we can do it, keep them firing. This idea that labor and management are both rolling up their sleeves, they're in it together. You know, don't question your management. Don't ask for more money. They're in this war together. Uh, one more, I'm proud of you folks too. Um, you know, it has a soldier, the sailor coming back from war, shaking hands with the people who are on the whole home front. Um, an older gentleman and a, and, a, and a young lady. This idea that, hey, you've done your part for America. You know, the soldiers are proud of you for doing this. Uh, if you go over one more slide, this one's pretty blatant. Free labor will win. Basically, that means non-union labor. Um, <laughs> woo, even though they're saying, hey, don't go on strike, they're basically insinuating that, you know, union labor is not patriotic. They're only interested in themselves, not the country. Now, the same thing applies kinds of rationing. Um, just because a worker could afford more stuff, there's a lot of propaganda out there designed to make sure they ration. Uh, make sure they ration. Uh, Y'all have probably seen rationing ads, victory parties, things like that. I uh, Remember, the reason they ration is because not because there's not enough stuff. There's actually enough stuff, and people actually have money. Uh, it's the fact that they want to keep as much of it as they can for the war effort. They're basically ins they're telling people, don't spend that extra money you have on, you know, fancy things, or like, you know, don't buy too much meat, or don't buy too many nylons, because that's stuff that's protected under rationing. This idea is, even though you have the money, don't spend it. So I bet you're wondering, wait, okay, if I have all this excess money, what should I spend it on? Well, don't worry, the propaganda police has something for you, 
War Bonds. Buy all the War Bonds. Uh, these were very much pushed by businesses in their ads, and these ads are everywhere. This idea being, hey, if you're a good, hardworking person who's doing less for America, but you have excess money, why don't you do war bonds? Um, governments can raise money in two ways. They can have taxes, or they can have bonds. Pretty much a bond is you giving the government money with the promise that they'll pay you back later on. Uh, usually it's not a very high interest rate. In fact, it's next to nothing. Uh, for instance, for a savings bond, they double over about 30 years, I believe. But that's a savings bond. War bond's a little bit different. But theoretically, though, it's seen as a very secure way to keep your money. You can still buy treasury notes and stuff. Um, you know, the U.S. still owes a lot. In fact, I'm sure you've heard a lot of stuff about the United States being, you know, deep in debt. Uh, the main people we're deep in debt to are ourselves through bonds and stuff. Uh, so basically, the idea in this time period is, hey... You're a good, hardworking American. You have extra money to spend it on. Buy some war bonds. That's how you can do with your excess money. If you if you if you go over one slide, you'll see they're appealing to the women. You know the women who are now working the Rosie the River types. You know this is my fight too. Put at least ten percent, even every payday, into war bonds. So almost like a tithe, almost like a tithe. Except instead of going to church, you're going to the government. Get them 10% of your salary to buy war bonds for the war effort because, quote-unquote, you're a good American. Go over one slide. I love this one. Uh, it's this Gerber's, like the baby food company, with strain oatmeal. You can buy it for no points of, like, hey, baby food is not rationed because soldiers don't need baby food. But for baby security, you know, with that money you're saving because it's not rationing and you're not going to have to spend a bunch on it, buy war bonds. You know, the idea that to help baby, baby's going to help the Americans shoot down the Japanese, which is kind of funny. Now, there's also a bunch of racial propaganda. A lot of racial propaganda. Uh, there's not too much anti-German or Italian uh, propaganda in the sense of as a race. Um, yes, Mussolini and Hitler are mocked, like, all the time. Like, all the time, all the time. And the Nazis are very solid villains. Uh, don't get this twisted. Like, still to this day, if you need, like, a fill-in-the-blank villain for anything. Just put a Nazi in, and people are like, oh yeah, it's a Nazi. They're clearly bad. Uh, but they really don't say anything about the race as a whole. Um, you still have this idea of the good German, or the good Italian. You know, they differentiate between, like, Germans as a race and the Nazi party. That's not the case for the Japanese. Uh, the War of the Pacific was a race war, pure and simple. Um, there is a lot of racial, racist propaganda um, depicting the Japanese as a whole as subhuman. Not, not just, you know, the Japanese themselves, the, just like the, the more warlike Japanese, but basically the Japanese race is insects or subhuman. Go over one slide, you will see uh, Made in Japan, caught in the Pacific, tanned the U.S. Here yanks the pelt of a Jap who stuck to yank for a sap. He never deserved to be preserved, so he kept his hide in his cap. This idea that, hey, we're going to kill a Jap person, not a Nazi, not just like, oh, there's some good Japanese out there. You don't get that in World War II. Likewise, this even goes to children's stuff. Uh, comic books are around in this time period. We might talk about comic books later on. I haven't decided about that yet. Uh, Superman says you can slap a Jap with war bonds and stamps. Uh, this is still definitely done for children. This idea that, you know, Superman is saying, hey, buy war bonds, but also we hate Japanese people. Uh, if you go over one more, you're going to have Captain America. Captain America. Uh, here he is punching Nazis. Notice they're not just saying this is all Japanese people. This is 
just Nazis. Uh, this is the first cover of Captain America. There's Captain America punching Hitler. Um, yeah, Captain America punching Hitler. There we go. Uh, now, it, it is kind of interesting in this time period that there are some uh, limits to the Japanese uh, limits of propaganda. Uh, for instance, that um, Hirohito, the emperor, is really not shown that much or ever as a monster. Uh, the emperor Hirohito, they don't really demonize him too much in the propaganda, but they most certainly really, really, really like go at Tojo. If you go for one more, you're going to see a very, very, very racist caricature of Tojo. Um... You know, the, the buck teeth, the glasses, he's like a subhuman person using the broken English type of thing. Uh, very much done. Uh, the Emperor, however, is really not shown this way. A uh, lot of reasons for this distinction. For instance, uh, the Emperor is viewed as semi-divine. Uh, likewise, they don't want to upset them even further. Also, Tojo makes a little bit of a better villain. Uh, and also, to be fair, like the King of Italy, uh, believe it or not, Italy has a king in this time period. Uh, the King of Italy is not demonized, although Mussolini is. Likewise, uh, the King of Spain. Spain has a king. Franco's in charge of it. Uh, talk to me later about Franco. Uh, the King of Spain's not really demonized the same way as uh, Franco is, even though Franco's theoretically not involved in World War II. Uh, this is not just done by the Americans, though. The Japanese have pl plenty of propaganda against the Americans. Uh, in most Japanese propaganda, though, the Americans are seen as oni. Um, Oni, Owen, and I is a Japanese type of demon um, in folklore. Um, the, probably the, the closest thing we have to it in like Western uh, folklore is something like an ogre. Something like an ogre. Just something big, demonic, large, strong, unwieldy. Uh, the American propaganda generally showed the Japanese as like insects or something subhuman. The Japanese uh, propaganda generally shows the Americans as demonic, like giant ogre things. Oni is the thing. Uh, for instance, if you go over one slide, you're going to see a picture of Franklin Delano Roosevelt, very much done in this Oni style. If you go over one more, you're going to see, this is actually, this is actually pretty interesting. This is anti-American propaganda dropped by the Japanese in Australia. Uh, the insinuation that while the Australians are dying in New Guinea, the Americans are in Australia raping Australian women, pretty much. Uh, this is basically some of this Japanese propaganda against the Americans designed to sow dissent uh, amongst the Australians against America. You go one more slide, you're going to see this idea that the war is being done for money. Uh, that happens a lot in this time period. Um, this idea that the Japanese tell the American soldiers, hey, you know, Franklin Delano Roosevelt's only interested in money. This war, you know, this is not your war. Um, you know, leave Japan out of the Pacific. You know, this is the Monroe Doctrine. They even uh, highlight the Monroe Doctrine and some other propaganda, basically saying this isn't America's fight. The only reason why America's getting involved is that uh, Franklin Roosevelt is fascinated by money, and that's all he wants. Insinuating that, like, these are bad Americans. And notice, if you look at Franklin Roosevelt right there, he's definitely got the Oni horns. That's probably the most demonic depiction I have. There's way other depictions of Franklin Roosevelt as a demon or as an Oni. Like I said, this is Japanese propaganda. Now, these are mainly done for adults. These are mainly done for adults. But since we're talking about Disney, let's talk a bunch about children's cartoons that were designed to be propaganda. That's right. This isn't just for adults. 
you already saw Superman slapping the Jap. But let's talk about some children's cartoons. And all these are done in the same year, weirdly enough. Uh, the year is 1943. The first one I want you to know about is 1943's De Führer's Face. Uh, De Führer's Face is probably the most um, well-received of these. Uh, very well-received. Uh, it wins an Academy Award, actually. This is the best critically received. It's theoretically the most artistically done. Um, I, I have a clip of it, so you can watch it. Um, it's from Disney, 1943. Wins the Academy Award. Wins an Oscar. Uh, pretty much, it stars Donald Duck as a very reluctant Nazi. Uh, as a very reluctant Nazi, basically, Donald Duck has a very bad dream about how he's a Nazi, and it makes fun of Hitler quite a bit. You can click on that. You'll, you'll watch it. I would recommend you watch it all. Uh, the song is very catchy, too. I would say that it has a very catchy song. The song's actually almost as famous, if not more famous, than the movie. But it makes fun of Hitler. It makes fun of Hitler. It makes fun of the Nazis. I mean, you can see right there Donald Duck throwing, Donald Duck throwing a tomato at Hitler's face. Um, you know, he's being anti-fascist, whatever. Um, very popular song attached to it. This is on a children's cartoon. This is, like I said, this is the best received of those. Really pushing this idea that children should be taught early on that Nazis are not good, and they're also aware of the war effort. There's no way, I mean, when you're going through something like this, children are aware of it. Uh, the next one, it's another 1943 one. This one's from Warner Brothers. It's called Falling Hair. Uh, this one stars Bugs Bunny. This one stars Bugs Bunny and a gremlin. Uh, a gremlin is also a very World War II concept. Uh, gremlins are theoretically tiny creatures that live in airplanes that mess them up. Uh, basically, it was something that uh, airplane pilots, you know, these fighter jet pilots start talking to each other about. The idea that you know things start breaking in the air. Uh, it's a gremlin that does it. Oh, these little gremlins start screwing around with them. Uh, doesn't really talk too, too much about the Nazis very much. It doesn't really demonize the enemy. Uh, it takes place primarily on an American military base. It's basically, uh, you know, Bugs Bunny versus a gremlin. Uh, does talk a lot about rationing, talks about the nature of warfare, a lot about the domestic front. Uh, for instance, the end, spoiler, and also watch all this one too. Um, you know, the the gremlin and um, Bugs Bunny, they're falling in a plane. The plane has no wheel, has no wings. It's about to crash to the earth. And, it, and, and at the last second, it doesn't crash because it runs out of fuel. And they make a joke about rationing. Uh, this one, like I said, is not quite as well-received as The Furious Face. The Furious Face wins an Oscar. Uh, the next one I'm going to talk about, like I said, it just shows the sheer glut of these. Uh, it's called Scrap Happy Daffy. Uh, this one stars Daffy Duck, and it's actually in black and white. This one's in black and white. Uh, this one is much more antagonistic against the Nazis. Um, it's Daffy Duck. Basically, he's in charge of a scrapyard, part of the rationing stuff. Uh, it's a little bit more adult, quote-unquote. I mean, it, it's still a kid's cartoon, nothing too adult, but he like he does a wolf whistle at a woman. Um, it's, it's mainly Daffy Duck versus a goat. It's Daffy Duck versus a Nazi goat who comes over in a submarine. Uh, the best part, though, is at the end, wherever basically Daffy Duck runs out of energy, and then he sees his uh, American forefathers, like, you know, P Pilgrim Daffy and George Washington Daffy, Thomas Jefferson Daffy, and at the end he turns in not just a superhero, super American, not even Superman, super American, beats up this Nazi goat, beats up Hitler, this whole shtick behind it. Um, I personally think this is probably the most... Uh, comical of all these. I think this is the one that stands up the best from a humor standpoint. 
because there's some pretty funny stuff in there about like you know Donald uh, Daffy Duck going up against this 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 Nazi goat. It's it's pretty funny. I'd, I'd recommend you watch all of this. As I mentioned, another 1943 cartoon. Uh, the final 1943 cartoon I'm not giving you a clip of for reasons that will become pretty self-evident. Uh, this is another Looney Tunes cartoon. It's a Merry Melody. That's uh, the Warner Brothers cartoon series. Uh, 1943. It's later censored for very obvious reasons. Um, it's highly racially insensitive, even for the 1940s. Like, I need you to realize, even for the 40s, this was considered racist. This was considered a little too far. It's called Cold Black and the Seven Doors. It's a retelling of the story of Snow White, which, remember, is a pretty popular... You know, it only came out a couple years before. It was a very, very, very big movie for Disney. It's a retelling of the story, except all the characters are black. Highly sexualized. This whole thing is super, super sexualized. Uh, they overly sexualized Snow White. Uh, they overly sexualized the Queen. They overly sexualized Prince Charming. It's a very sexual cartoon. Uh, even as theoretically children's entertainment. And also the Seven Doors were in the army. Uh, they very much make this an army thing. Basically, the Seven Doors were in the army. Uh, some of the gags that are kind of World War II in this time period, uh, for instance, it says Murder, Inc., We Kill Anybody for a Dollar, Midgets Half Price, Japs Free. Or in a zoot, or when Prince Charming, uh, who's a zoot suitor, which if you heard about me, we've talked about zoot suitors before, uh, he can't awaken the sleeping Snow White. Uh, they changed the title of the film to Cole Black, even though in the film she's called Snow White, because they don't want a lawsuit from Disney. They're like, if we call this Snow White and the Seven Dwarves, um, Disney might sue us. Uh, even though, so that the title is one thing, but in the, in the movie they only call her Snow White. Uh, basically, you know, Prince Charming, his magic kiss doesn't, doesn't wake up Snow White. Then one of the dwarves kisses her in a very sexualized manner. This is the 1940s. Uh, ultimately, Snow White's pigtails, because she's so excited, turn into American flags. It's like one of those classic, um, you know, cartoon kissy things, like woo, and her, her pigtails turn into American flags. And whenever he's asked why he can do it, uh, he's like, "That's a military secret." Now, what I want you to realize, even though this is done in black and white and it's crazy racist, uh, this is an expensive production. Like, there's a lot of musical cues. Uh, the entire script rhymes. It's it's in rhythm. Um, for better or worse, it fits the spirit of the times. Like, it shows just how deep World War II sentiment runs. It's like, hey, we're going to be racist. We're going to be degradating to African Americans. But we're also going to show that doing so can make you a quote-unquote good American. Likewise, even racial stereotypes support the war effort. It's, like I said, this one I will not link to if, you know... I'm sure you can find it if you really want to watch it. Um, just know it exists. I, I will never ask you anything about, like, you have to watch this. Uh, because this one, like I said, even for the 40s, they thought it was racist. Now, there are a couple live-action ones I want you to know about. Both of these come out in 1940. Uh, probably the more famous of the two is The Great Dictator. Uh, the Great Dictator is also done to go against Triumph of the Will. Um, it's done by Charlie Chaplin. It's one of the ones I linked to you. Um, in Moodle. Um, watch it. You can watch all of it. You can watch some of it. Just get the gist of it. Uh, the cartoons, I'd recommend you watch all of. This one, just watch enough to get a gist of it. I don't know, 15, 20 minutes or so. Uh, it's a comedy where he mocks Hitler. Where he mocks Hitler. Basically, it's a Hitler stand-in. 
He's not quite Adolf Hitler, but he's very much in the Adolf Hitler um, mold. However, uh, the story at the end, if you if you are going to watch it, watch a little bit of the beginning, but also watch the end, where basically Hitler has a change of heart. Uh, the Hitler stand-in is like, oh my gosh, you know, we need to be good to each other, we have to have peace. So even though he's made fun of Hitler for quite a while, he decides at the end, you know what, maybe my Hitler character is going to have peace. Now what's interesting about this is that this was made before the U.S. entered the war. And it actually, it seems like he's appealing to the better angels in the world. Um, the cartoons were made after the U.S. got into the war. This one's made before the U.S. enters the war, where it's like basically, hey, this Hitler guy is bad news, but maybe we can get rid of him without fighting. It's not necessarily advocating for war, but it is saying Hitler is bad. Um, Charlie Chaplin does talk in this one. Uh, most of the Charlie Chaplin films, he is a silent actor. In this one, he definitely talks. This one's fairly critically well-received. Um... However, the next one I'm going to talk about actually predates it. I'm not saying that Charlie Chaplin ripped him off, but I am saying it came out earlier. It's called You Nazi Spy. Uh, this one predates The Great Dictator. Uh, this is starring all three stooges as, like, Mussolini and um, Hitler. Uh, this one is not as hopeful as Dictator. This one really, really takes the mickey at... Um, Hitler. This one really lampoons Hitler, and it lampoons Hitler hard. Uh, this is not surprising that it lampoons Hitler very hard, because all three stooges are Jewish. All three stooges were Jewish. Pretty much anybody who was a stooge was a Jew, was a, was a Jewish person. And they had heard murmurings about what was going on with the concentration camps and that Hitler's being very anti-Semitic. Uh, nobody knows the extent of how bad the concentration camps are until after the war, but they do know Hitler is very much not in favor of Jews, and so they feel no reservations whatsoever about, like, tearing Hitler a new one hard. I mean, at the end of Charlie Chaplin's, um, at the end of The Great Dictator, you know, Hitler kind of has a moment where it's like, oh, maybe there could be peace in the world. Not so much with the Three Stooges. They're like, this dude's a jerkwad. We're going to have all we can at that. Now, we're actually going to close with Disney as a whole. Uh, Disney as a whole, there's a lot of things he does after this. After the war, that's actually where he gets bigger. Um, he actually starts making more money because he gets away from just animation. Television's very big for him. His parks are super huge for him. That's probably what you're most familiar with, is his parks. He does a lot with television, a lot more live-action movies. Uh, he dies in 1965, but even though he dies he really looms large over the entire 20th century as being kind of the embodiment of the American pop culture, this American appearance. And there's some aspects of, Disney char of Disney's character which I think really, really get ingrained into American culture, and American pop culture in particular. Uh, the first, for instance, is Disney's obsession with the past. Disney is super obsessed with the past. Um, his parks and a lot of his movies are very much tied to nostalgia. Yes, it's children's entertainment, okay? But children's entertainment, by its very nature, can't be nostalgic. Remember, nostalgic is something when you like are calling towards a past. Children, by their very being, can't be too nostalgic. Like, whenever you're five or six years old, it, it, they don't really have the memories of like, oh, I'm going to look back on fondness of when I was two. Oh, two was such a good year. That's so wonderful. Uh, most children's entertainment, by its very nature, can't be nostalgic because children can't be nostalgic. But Disney is not really pulling upon that. 
Disney's really pulling upon nostalgia for the parents. You know, he's you know he's doing adaptations of fairy tales because that's what the parents are familiar with, and he's like, you know what, the parents are going to want to see it too. This idea that you can relive your childhood with Disney. Everybody's a kid with Disney. Unlock the child in you. It's very much tied to nostalgia. Very much tied to a very certain depiction of the past. You see this in all of his movies. For instance, Disney very rarely makes brand new plots. When Disney's alive, pretty much all of his animated features, with the exception of Fantasia, which we're going to in a second, are adaptations of older books that are in the public domain. Uh, even the stuff that's newer stuff, like Bambi, that's not an original uh, plot. Generally, Disney doesn't do original plots. Still to this day, for most of their animated movies, Disney doesn't really make wholly original plots. Um, y- you might have to check me on this, but I, I think the first Disney movie with a quote-unquote wholly original plot was uh, animated movie, animated movie, animated movie, with a wholly original plot was theoretically maybe Fox and the Hound, but I think that might be an adaptation of their book, probably The Lion King, which is very much ripping off Hamlet. It's Okay, The Lion King is Hamlet, but still, most of the time, Disney works are adaptations, animated features are adaptations of older stories, really to tie into the nostalgia. You even have this with the parks. Uh, for instance, if you go over one slide, you're going to see Main Street USA. That's in Disneyland. It's also in Disney World. If you've ever been to a Disney park, the first place you go through is this 1890s version of the United States of America. An 1890 version of small town America where like everything's its own little store. Everything's all nice and good and wonderful. Everything is good. Everything is happy. Everything is very clean, very sanitized. Uh, Nostalgia for the 1890s is not unusual. Disney does not invent that. Uh, The 1890s is like when you have the Chicago exhibition. It's seen as kind of a boom time pretty much until the like 50s. You know, it's seen when America is at its best is at the 1890s, when America starts to get quote-unquote modern. Uh, I mean, Disney's probably the best example of this. Think of something like The Music Man, if you're familiar with musicals. A lot of this kind of idealizing of the 1890s, and you have this with Main Street USA. Now remember, Disney's not born until 1901. He has no memory of the 1890s, but he hears what people talk about. He hears the stories about it. Uh, for instance, y'all. Y'all were probably born in the early 2000s, maybe something on the late 90s. Uh, y'all probably heard about 80s nostalgia. Some of y'all might be really big into 80s nostalgia. It's something, it's nostalgia for a time before you were born. And that's what Disney's really tapping into. Now, even though this is kind of a fantasy, he does lean upon a real-world example. Uh, Main Street USA and Disney World is actually based upon the real old town of Fort Collins, Colorado. Uh, basically, Disney at some point traveled through Fort Collins. He loved the way that its downtown worked, uh, Old Town. And if you look, that's pretty much the same facade, the same image that you see in Disneyland. But here's the thing. Even when Disney's looking at it, it was called Old Town. Like, and Fort Collins was not that old when Disney actually gets, well, it was kind of old because it gets built in like the 1870s, right after the, uh, right after the Civil War. But still, this idea that he's, he's hearkening to something. That itself, when he saw it, was hearkening to something older. You cannot divorce Disney from nostalgia. Like, even right now, when I say Disney, you're thinking of nostalgia. 
That's because a lot of his movies and marketing really tread upon this nostalgia. But he's also really focused upon the future, particularly with technology. When Disney was alive, he was very big about using the newest technology for his animation. But it's a very nostalgic version of it. Uh, you know, his animation, his film techniques, he's using new techniques to tell old stories, if that makes sense. He's using brand new cutting-edge quote-unquote techniques to tell old stories. Uh, think of a place like Tomorrowland. If you go over one side, you'll see Tomorrowland. Uh, Tomorrowland is to be a retro-nostalgic version of the future. It's not supposed to be a realistic future. It's the way that we thought about the future in the past, which in turn makes you think about the past. Tomorrow, I mean, when Tomorrow, this is an updated Tomorrowland, but like when Tomorrowland was made in the first Disney parks, they weren't really talking about a vision of the future. It's like, hey, here's how we used to think about the future. That in of itself is very, very self-referential, and I want y'all to talk about that quite a bit whenever we're in class or when we discuss this. Now, Disney is also obsessed with America, particularly Americana. Uh, there is no way you can divorce Disney from the United States of America and a particular nostalgic version of America. Most of Disney's nostalgia is saved for the United States. I mean, he does tons of versions of Tall Tales. There you have Paul Bunyan, Babe the Blue Ox. Uh, Frontierland is something you'll have at every Disney park. This idea that here's this frontier version, this clean version of what America used to be. Kind of tapping into that Buffalo Bill mentality, too, except it's a permanent site you can walk around. It's a land you can come to. Instead of, you know, the West coming to you, you can go to the West. Um, Disney's Americana. You can see there, there's a lot of different ones, you know... Um, all sorts of very Disney-fied versions of American stuff. Absolutely. you got, like, Old Yeller. It's old time. Probably the best in the 1950s is Davy Crockett. Uh, before Disney, nobody had really heard too much of Davy Crockett. Yeah, he was kind of a folk hero. People know he died at the Alamo. Uh, Disney turns him to the biggest thing in the mid-50s because of his TV show. Kind of tapping into this Americana nostalgia. Disney is presenting a very... Disney-fied version of America. It's a merger of everything. It's nostalgia. It's the land. I mean, the best example of this at every Disney park over one side, that is the freaking Hall of Presidents. It combines, at the time, you know, cutting-edge technology, cutting-edge animatronics. There are these presidents that give speech, even to this day. You know, presidents, if they're elected president, they're going to get a animatronic version of them put up. And basically, you can go to it it's almost like a cathedral. I, I, I'm not saying Walt Disney worships America. Not like that. But it's like, it's almost like it blends the line between secular and sacred. It's like you're going to this cathedral of America to hear these great icons speak as though their ancient wisdom has something else to give the United States of America. When Disney goes across the world, uh, one of the reasons he's decried, you know, the Disney company is because it's too American in its culture, too American in its values, and undermining the culture of other places. In fact, Disney, later on, um, not while Disney is alive, but in the 90s, the Disney company even tries to make a Disney version of American history. I talked about this earlier in y'all's class, but if y'all haven't heard of it before, it's called Disney's America. Disney's America was to be built at a Civil War battlefield in Virginia. And it was supposed to be an entire theme park dedicated to American history. Uh, kind of ripping off Colonial Williamsburg. 
Uh, Williamsburg used to be the capital of Virginia. Uh, later, it only went to disrepair. Uh, around the 1930s or so, uh, some various rich families got together, refurbished some of the buildings. If you go there, you're going to see, you know, people dressed in, you know, knickerbockers and uh, three-cornered hats and buckled shoes. You know, Ben Franklin hangs out around there. It's a Ben Franklin impersonator. I- I've been there recently. It's pretty cool because it kind of blends the line between fake and real. Like, yes, I'm seeing a Ben Franklin impersonator, but that's the real governor's house of uh, Williamsburg. You know, that's the real Capitol building. That's a real recreation of some of these houses. You know, it's this whole kind of shtick where you can go into it. It it blurs the line between tourism and historical. Because, you know, you can... I'm trying to think of something I did there, which was kind of fun. That kind of blurs this line. Oh, okay. Uh, For instance, you can buy um, old goods. Like, they have a blacksmith who's, like, showing you how they blacksmithed. But you can also buy these blacksmith goods. You can buy the nails, and you can use your credit card. So it's kind of funny. Uh, it, it, I will say it was kind of funny whenever the blacksmith whipped out a, a credit card, his, his iPhone with a little credit card reader. I was like, that's not historically accurate. Uh, sadly or unsadly, the Disney's America theme park never got built because this was not. This was going to be a historical site, but not really with historical buildings. They were really going to like build this on a Civil War battlefield, which in of itself is you know problematic because like. People died on Civil War battlefields, and they might be buried there. But also making a recreation of kind of this antebellum period. Uh, he, this one was to really focus upon kind of the period between Andrew Jackson and the Civil War, kind of antebellum. Uh, so it would include, like, a plantation recreation. Uh, I would be fascinated to see the original concept art or what they thought a Disney plantation for tourists could be like. And like, oh, we're going to have it historically accurate. We'll have slaves and stuff there. I will just say I would be fascinated to see how they try to do this. Uh, sadly or unsadly, the park never comes about because of public outcry. This is after Disney's uh, is dead, but still I think it's a pretty good example of it. Another element of Disney, which I don't have a picture of, uh, very prudish, very Puritan values. Um, yes, this is primarily children's entertainment, but you got to remember the base of a lot of these stories are fairy tales that are pretty gruesome. Like the Brothers Grimm, if you read his stuff, they're really gruesome. And like if you look at early cartoons, not just Disney cartoons, but pre-code cartoons, like some of your old Betty Boops and stuff. Uh, they are way more provocative and adult than anything Disney makes. Disney is, even for his time, even in children's entertainment, is viewed as a lot more prudish or more Puritan in their values. Uh, the Brothers Grimm versions of fairy tales are gruesome. There's a lot more death, a lot more like gruesome death, a lot more creative death, frankly. The Disney stuff is generally they die off screen. Uh, the Brothers Grimm, they will make you uncomfortable telling about how the Wicked Witch dies, sort of thing. Uh, this also comes when it comes to, like, sex and nudity. Um, other children's cartoons of this time, pre-code, pre-code, uh, like some Betty Boop stuff, are pretty, like, upfront with showing, it's not pornography or anything, but, like, showing nudity, showing a lot more sexualization, shall we say. Uh, Disney doesn't do that. Um, you know, some of the stuff Looney Tunes does with wolf whistles or like, you know, a little red, uh, uh, 
Oh, God. The Tex Avery one. What is it called? Um, Little Hot Rotting Hood, I think. What, what is she called? Let me look that up. Sorry. Red Hot Riding Hood. Red Hot Riding Hood. Um, it's done by Tex Avery, who's very much a contemporary of Disney. Also made in 1943, so it's another 1943 movie. Uh, that is very over the top. You know, the, the female character has a very short skirt. Very provocative. Uh, you don't have that in Disney, and yet this is still seen as children's entertainment. This is, you know, the big bad wolf doing the Aruga. Uh, you'll know it when you see it. If, if you watch it, I mean, it's nothing you'd feel uncomfortable watching now by any sense. But that's not something you see in Disney. Uh, even whenever nudity is shown, um, it's very purified. Uh, for instance, in Fantasia, which is like a, a series of vignettes, there is a scene uh, where they're showing like the, uh, the Greek pastoral scene. Uh, where they do have a female topless centaur, but they don't show nipples. They don't show nipples. They just basically say this is quote to be to be quote unquote artistically done. It's like he's making a version of entertainment already out there that's leaning upon nostalgia, but it's sanitizing it. Does that make sense? He's sanitizing nostalgia. Now this goes into his big thing, which really ties into a lot of stuff we've talked about over this semester. He's creating an image that becomes the definitive. Disney's adaptations are not the original, but by God, have they become the definitive. If I say Snow White, if I say Sleeping Beauty, if I say Beauty and the Beast, if I say Cinderella, I guarantee you the first thing that pops in your mind is the Disney version. Even though they weren't the original, even though he's adapting stuff that's well in the public domain, Disney is very keen on making his image, the best image, and the most authoritative image. He is obsessed with image. Uh, particularly his own image. Uh, he makes sure that Walt Disney the man and Walt Disney the kind of affable grandfather figure he becomes later in life would not overlap. Uh, this is really seen, if you go over one slide, in his smoking habit. Uh, Walt Disney was a chain smoker for his entire life. Uh, for his entire life, Walt Disney was a chain smoker. He, he smoked like a chimney, Apparently, he was always smoking. He dies of lung cancer fairly young at 1966, at 65 years old. Some of y'all might not think that's very old. Some of y'all might not think it's very young. That's, that's fairly young for somebody to die in this time period. Uh, he makes sure this never comes out. It's crazy, though, because that's not even really a taboo back then. Like, everybody smoked back then, and that was kind of the expectation. Like, it was expected that people smoked back then. But it doesn't fit his clean image. Uh, he has a quote where he tells a friend one time, like, you know, I smoke and I drink, but Walt Disney can't do that. Does that make sense? Like, he's very conscious of the fact that he does smoke and he does drink alcohol, but he's not letting his public character get that. Uh, this is a fairly interesting picture that the Walt Disney Company um, cleaned up. You know, they, they kind of photoshopped it to, make, to clean it up. The original picture's on the left. It's very washed out. It's Walt Disney walking out. Notice what's missing in the cleaned-up version. That's right, a signet, uh, his, his cigarette. The original picture had a cigarette. The new one edited it out, as though he didn't smoke at all. And this is very much tied into the whole Disney aesthetic. So much of Disney is about the image. Uh, the buildings at Disneyland, all right? There's a lot of forced perspective. Forced perspective is a movie-making technique, a magician's technique, uh, where basically it makes something look bigger or smaller than it actually is. Disney is the king of this at Disney World. 
So much of this is forced perspective. So much of it, like the buildings, they look like they're two-story. They're not. They're one and a half. Cinderella's castle looks massive. No, it's just that everything around it makes it like kind of look taller. If you actually get up to it, it's really not that tall. But if you're taking pictures of it, it looks much taller than it is. Disneyland the park, like the original Disneyland park, is only on 40 acres. I repeat, the original Disneyland park is only on 40 acres. That's not very big. But by using winding paths and things like that, it makes it seem a lot bigger than it actually is. That's such a Disney thing. This idea that image becomes the authority. Uh, Disney also tries to make sure his company looks like it's the cleanest, happiest place to work. You know, you've heard of Disney. It's the happiest place on Earth. Uh, Very much in a lot of his TV stuff later on, wherever he shows behind the scenes, he shows the animators like kind of looking almost in like a... Animators Paradise, they're given a lot of free time, they can goof off, they can do whatever they want. Um, in actuality, Disney was known for being pretty hard towards his employees. Uh, his employees complained a lot about low wages and bad conditions. He was also especially brutal towards unions. Uh, Disney hated unions. Disney was super anti-union. He would not allow unions in his company. So even though he's talking about, hey, it's the happiest place to work, it's wonderful, all the animators are happy, uh, he really comes with this depiction of basically it's not necessarily the same. But that doesn't come out while he's alive. Uh, People talking about the Disney working conditions, it never really comes out too much. Uh, Maybe some of y'all know cast members who worked at Disney. Like, it can be a pretty tough job, but they don't talk too much about it. Uh, Another thing Disney becomes pretty famous for is litigation. Uh, particularly nowadays, the Disney company is like hardcore about litigation. Even though Disney got his start like taking ideas that were in the public domain, they can be the most brutal about suing you for doing something with any of their work. Like, I don't know if you get this, but like the idea of copyright, it keeps getting extended because of Disney. Like, theoretically, as of this year, and it got extended because originally copyright was just supposed to be for the lifetime of the creator. It's supposed to be like 50, 60 years tops after something is made. It keeps getting extended pretty much exclusively for the Walt Disney Company. Uh, for instance, as of, I believe it was last year, uh, when does when does, when does Steve Willie come out? Yeah, Steve Willie comes out in 1928. So it's been 90 years as of 2018. So 2018, 2019. Theoretically, Steamboat Willie Mickey Mouse is in the public domain. Theoretically, Theoretically, you can use Steamboat Willie Mickey Mouse in your own animated feature, and you can't be arrested for it. You can't, well, you're not going to be arrested. You can't be fined for it. Disney can't sue you. If any of y'all are willing to try, I'll let y'all be the first, because I guarantee you, if you try, Disney has some of the most expensive lawyers and tons of them. They will cease and desist you so hard. But Disney's world, not Disney World, but Disney's kind of worldview, for lack of a better term, becomes the expectation not just for children and childhood, but for a whole generation, particularly baby boomers. Like, this is a crafting of an imagery. Like, remember how we talked about Barnum and Buffalo Bill? They're crafting an image of, like, this depiction of the past. But they're selling mainly to older people. Disney is basically crafting an image that can last an entire lifetime. Like, you know, get them while they're super young. They're going to stay with Disney. The Disney's going to become the definitive. And Disney is going to provide for you pretty much from womb to tomb, from cradle to grave. Disney will provide your image. 
Uh, Disney does a very brisk wedding business. Uh, I know plenty of people who get married at Disney World because they want to become a Disney princess. These are maybe some of y'all want to do that. Maybe some of y'all want to have the Disney princess fairy tale wedding. Like these are men and women in their 20s or 30s who are spending good money on this. Likewise, Disney is a very popular honeymoon destination. This idea that you want to spend your honeymoon, which is an adult thing to do, where you do adult things, at Disney World doing quote-unquote kitty things for the child in you. Like, the fact that Disney cultivates this whole thing where it's not just children's stuff, but, you know, there's a Star Wars world, which, like, really kind of geared towards Gen X and Millennials, like myself. Uh, They're getting into the Marvel movies. This idea that Disney will always have entertainment for you, but very much tied to nostalgia. And I was really going to make a joke, but if you go over one slide, this is evidently a thing. Uh, there's a Disney-affiliated company. It's not Disney itself, but there's an affiliated company that does funeral services with Disney characters. I wish I was joking. I can't believe this is a thing. I thought I was going to make a joke about it, but then I googled around, and apparently this exists. You can have Mickey Mouse come to your funeral. You can do a Disney-style funeral. Mickey will come to your come to your funeral. They'll Disneyfy your freaking funeral. Like from cradle to grave is apparently literal. The cultivation of this image is really the thing going on here. But that's more broad-based. I really want you to think about World War II. Think about World War II. Think about the propaganda. Uh, watch all the cartoons. Watch as much as you want of The Great Dictator and You Nazi Spy. Uh, I'm sure some of y'all like The Three Stooges, You Nazi Spy. It will be right up your alley. Uh, we'll be talking about this in class next week. I hope y'all enjoy this one. This one, uh, it is important to talk about Disney when you talk about American pop culture. Not just about the man, but mainly about his impact. So for that, Dr. Tully signing off for Disney. Woo-hoo! That's my Mickey Mouse impression, and I'll probably be sued.